this is Christopher Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 65, and today I'm joined by Craig Ely, postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Arts and Humanities here at Penn State. And Craig graduated with a PhD in American Studies from the University of Iowa. It's this spring, right? Yeah, yeah, this summer, actually. Actually, all right, great. So his research interests include... um, the History of Recorded Sound, American Environmental History, The History of Science and Technologies, and Theories of Sound, Listening, and The Voice. He has joined me today to talk about an article entitled Making Them Talk, Animals, Music, and Museums. The essay has been accepted for publication in Antennae, the Journal of Nature and Visual Culture, which is publishing it as part of a special issue on the acoustic animal which is, I think, appropriate for us to be having a podcast on this, on this theme. So I met Craig uh, at this summer at the Liberal Arts um, Scholarship and Technology Summit, where we talk about digital humanities and, and digital using technology to enhance and enrich scholarship and pedagogy. And uh, he's himself doing interesting work in the digital humanities and specifically on technologies associated with sound. So it seemed proper, given this, that he would join me for an episode of the Digital Dialogue in which we can celebrate the degree to which we are both acoustic animals to some degree. (laughs) So welcome, Craig, to the Digital Dialogue. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to have you. So, um, and welcome to Penn State, too. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Yeah, exactly. And beautiful fall day. Exactly. We, we, we have a nice day for it, as I hope the picture that we post with this podcast <laughs> will, will demonstrate. Um, so tell me a little bit about this uh, essay and sort of what, what, what uh, animated your interest in this topic and then sort of what the mm-hmm. basic thesis and argument of the essay is. Yeah. I mean, I got interested in this topic. I was doing a bunch of research on the history of environmental sound recordings in general, Uh, which, of course, led me to Cornell University. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in the archives there, in their special collections, working uh, in the archives of two men in particular, Arthur A. Allen, Mm -hmm. uh, who was kind of the head ornithologist, sort of the founder of the lab, who became very interested in photography, and then Peter Paul Kellogg, who was one of, originally one of his graduate students, then also worked for the lab and was specifically interested in sound recording. So these two worked in tandem a lot on doing what I found uh, interesting. They, they made a lot of sound motion pictures. Um, and as I was going through the materials, I found this really interesting um, set of slides and documentation related to an exhibit that they did uh, in 1936 where they went down to the swamps of Louisiana, recorded the ivory-billed woodpecker, and this is, of course, it's in its own kind of mythology and bird lore. They were some of the very few people who have ever actually seen this bird. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so it was hard to find. They had to actually... Yes. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, it, it, its nicknames include that, the ghost bird, uh-huh. uh, this bird that was, like, impossible to, and to see. And is it now extinct, or is it... Well, this is the debate. They uh-huh. thought it was extinct. There was rumors that it was extinct when they saw it in 1935. Uh-huh. Now no one has seen it since. Uh, its status is very much But they took pictures, too. They took pictures. They took video or motion picture film, still pictures, and also sound recordings. What they did was they took these images compiled them into a sort of, like, sort of early, early Photoshopping, you know? Uh-huh. They, they took the images they had, compiled them into one master image, and made a taxidermic diorama uh-huh. based on that image. They assembled the diorama, and then they put sound, their actual sound recordings, 
and these movies that they had taken, like kind of right beside the display. So you had the stuffed birds uh-huh. here, and then these motion sound motion pictures going on. So, but, but the stuffed birds were these woodpeckers. Yes, they were. So yes. they have they did they kill some? Well, no. Okay. They actually they Cornell had killed some in like the 1890s. I see. So they already Cornell is an institution. Yeah, 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 exactly. Someone I'm not sure who, but some right. they had been collected or gathered. Right. Uh, so they already had the birds. Okay. Um, but anyway, once I heard about this exhibit, I started thinking, wow, this is kind of strange. And I hadn't read much about this before, and a lot of the work that you see on taxidermy is obviously really visual in nature. Right. So I started thinking about, well, how, how do these things work together? So, so before we get into sort of the basic argument of the, mm-hmm. of the um, essay and the basic sort of account that you give there... Can you just talk a little bit about the the history of um, video and audio in terms of, you know, I often think of um, film as, obviously we had silent film, mm-hmm. so that was before, mm-hmm. but we had recordings before, so audio recordings before mm-hmm. that, right? Yep. So yep. audio recordings as such came first. Audio recordings as such, yeah, probably. Right. I mean, right. uh, Edison, you know, invents the phonograph in right. about 1878. Right. Um, it lies dormant mostly while he finishes work on the light bulb. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a little side project. Exactly, had a side project going. So I think, you know, if we're speaking generally, like 1890 is yeah. about when, when recordings kind of come into vogue and, and cinema's kind of puttering around there, right. like 1895 right. or something like so that. We've, so, I mean, I've heard early recordings of, you know, folk music and yeah. other kinds of things. Yeah. And one of the things I want to talk about eventually is the association of sound recordings with the desire to preserve and and remember mm-hmm. different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So you, you talk in your essay about the, the desire, even with regard to this woodpecker, right? Um, but also with regard to other birds, trying to record these sounds before they go extinct or be, be, record things um, before they they fade away right. Right? or are destroyed. Right, right. right. <laughs> you know, depending yeah, on, exactly. Right? So I think there's an interesting connection to be made between sound and memory and this desire for preservation of some kind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's what's really noteworthy is that, you know, in the earliest recordings, uh, like we were just talking about, 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, it's not even possible to record animals yet. Uh-huh. Um, the thing that's interesting about the Cornell Ornithology Lab is that they kind of pioneered these techniques. They worked with engineers at Cornell to create this kind of complicated setup that actually used sound film. Huh. Um, was how they how they did it. They so that so this is after the the film and sound came together. Like it, it, the, it is, but it's not done in the way you would think. They actually record it onto film using light. Uh-huh. Um, so they're actually recording it onto film, right, with like the lens cap closed. There's no the sound is happening on film, uh-huh. but on a separate strip of film from the from the film that they're shooting the the video with or the the images with. So they would actually capture it using this this device that did, made flashes of light. They could take that back into the lab and then transfer that back into. Um, audio. Uh-huh. So it was like there was a conversion process there. That technology was actually really interesting for them, though, because it was the first time they were really able to figure out that birds made sounds that were outside of the audible spec, outside of what we could hear. Because they saw it. Yeah, because they, they saw could, something they, they couldn't s- translate. Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. They would listen to the film and, and make notes, and they would go back and compare it. They'd look the film under the microscope, and they go, oh, you know, there's eight notes here that everybody missed. What's going on there? So yeah. there was this... It, it changed 
just how bird sounds were even imagined. Well, well, but why did they do it on film? Just because it was easier, cheaper, or something? Or was there? Was it, did they have this in mind that they might be able to see something they couldn't hear? Yeah. Well, they they had it. It was. I mean, this is. I think it was also one of the only options. You know, this is before magnetic tape, and doing it like directly onto a phonograph disc or something would have been very difficult. So they're actually basing almost everything they do on what was already happening in the film industry. I think I touch on that yeah. a little bit in here, but um, in one of the accounts, one of Alan's accounts, which he publishes later in National Geographic, he actually makes this really explicit. He tells the story whereby they have. Um, you know, they're sitting around one day, they get a call from people at Fox who are like, hey, you're the bird guys, you know, we're having a hard time with birds. Do you mind if we come up and show you what we're doing? And so they had this kind of collaboration with these people from an actual professional movie studio. Um, and from there, I think everyone's gears start turning really rapidly. They're looking at sound film technologies and how they can do, um, like you said, this what became really a preservationist project. Uh -huh. How can we get all the bird sounds in the world Right. And, and capture them and bring them back to our to our lab. So so, but at the beginning of the at the beginning of your essay, you start talk, you you really focus on kind of museum uh, the sort of museum mm -hmm. world mm -hmm. and the 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 American Natural History Museum and their desire to have certain kind of exhibits. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about that because it seems like that. I mean, you you go from there then into talking about early films, films like this Africa Talks, which I want to talk about <laughs> yeah. specifically because that yeah. sounds pretty interesting. The way they the way they seem to have manipulated sound mm -hmm. in that film, mm -hmm. uh, and then back into you know these the research in Cornell and the Woodpecker, and then ultimately um, mm -hmm. back to sort of this collaboration in, in museum exhibitions. So can you maybe talk a little bit about the sort of trajectory of the essay in that regard? Yeah, 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 sure. I'm, I mean, what I'm trying to do is, yeah, sketch out a historical trajectory where the first starts with just why are we even playing sounds in museums in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, I trace that back to an article in 1916 on museum fatigue, um, where people are worried that, in, especially in natural history museums and in art museums too, um, the person who wrote it was the director of the art museum in Boston. Okay. Um, and there was this concern that he voiced, which is like, things are too close together, people are tired of reading all this writing, we're putting things in cabinets that you have to kneel down to see or stand on your tippy toes. So there, the industry itself, 1916, it marks this moment where everyone starts going, all right, how can we make these exhibits sort of more user-friendly? Mm -hmm. How can we change things up? One of the things that people start doing in art museums, you start having phonograph concerts, so Edison himself would send phonographs and records to museums. You know, Part of it, he was trying to make the form more legitimate. Um, part of it were people just trying to give people a break. You know, Sit down here for a little bit, listen to some music, and then head back into the galleries. Uh -huh. In natural history museums, when you, okay, so now when you start to get into the 20s and 1930s, natural history museums are undergoing this kind of, what seems to me, from my read of the material, and I, I, I'm sort of actually admittedly a newcomer into what we might call museum studies, uh -huh. uh, you know, for the purposes of this essay. Right. But from what I can tell, there's this kind of all, this ever-present tension between, like, is our mission here to be educators? Is our mission here to be entertainers? Right. Is it to advance, you know, very, very high-level research? And that tension plays itself out in the exhibits. In the 1920s especially, you start to see... Uh, curators and trustees really start to emphasize, hey, can we make these things more entertaining? Mm -hmm. I talk about a guy named Douglas Burden, 
um, who's a famous filmmaker, ends up, I don't know if I say this in there, ends up launching Marine Land, uh-huh. uh, which is sort of the first sea world uh, yeah. down in Florida, he, you know, which the whole thing is rigged with television and, and film cameras. He was very much into the entertainment aspect of it. Right. And, well, and, and I guess Disney. Oh, I guess Disney comes later. Disney World, Disney, right, and all that stuff in the fifties. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, exactly. But there's still this kind of movement between entertainment and and and. Yeah, I mean, where the museum moves into entertainment, and you have this sort of exactly. location kind of thing. exactly. Yeah. And so you know, Burden brings back these Komodo dragons. They make yeah. movies about them. They put them in the zoo. There's this kind of you know natural history entertainment thing that's happening. Now what's interesting is it's also happening very much outside of the museum and these things inform each other. In the the late 1920s and the early 1930s you see this kind of rash of adventure nature films where usually like the protagonist who's a man embarks on a big expedition, danger and drama ensues, um, you know, bizarre secrets of other humans are revealed, uh-huh. you know, and then we come back to the United States with all this knowledge, and the whole thing is very, uh, you know, kind of scintillating. And, and, and just in terms of the production of those kinds of films, they, they, they in order to produce those, they had to bring film and sound together and, and do some of the things that they were doing already early on at, at Cornell with regard to some of the sound recordings. Well, you would think. Yeah. But right. because on-location recording is still really, really complicated, they're not doing that. They're basically shooting silent films. Uh-huh. And then they're coming back into the U.S., they're going back into the studio, they're adding the sound in post-production, attempting, in some cases, attempting to make it look real in some cases. But I not. thought that was an interesting point of your paper, which I'd love to hear a little bit more about. So there's this sort of tension between the people who were arguing for a more naturalistic uh, sound in these films where uh, things in the distance would sound softer and mm-hmm. perspective was was captured uh, differently, uh, whereas there were others, which is apparently the one that took hold because it was, a, as you say in your paper, it was a better exp- audit- audible experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. auditory experience in the in, in the film because that the, the sound was basically consistent. It was produced in a studio and it was right. all basically the same volume and and you didn't have things sort of, you know, all this ambient noise in, in the way. Right, <laughs> uh, you yeah. Know, and, it, and so, so what we're used to probably with regard to watching films, the sound associated with films, is a very unnatural kind of sound. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Even today, would yeah. you say? Yeah, oh yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. And, and we can do, and like, you know, that doesn't even get into like, you know, totally unnatural sound practices, um, the voiceover or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. but yeah. But yeah, what happens in this moment um, and actually, the, the question of diegetic and non-diegetic sound, which is in the history of cinema, is, fasc- is a fascinating one as well. I mean, what happens with, the re- with recording, I think I talk a lot about a guy named J.P. Maxfield, yeah. but in these early moments of sound film, you know, 1927, 28, 29, um, yeah, like you said, people were very much saying, well, how do we do this? Mm-hmm. And it's a question that's really one of the reasons I was drawn to it is when you tease out this material, it is a question about nature in the broadest sense. How do we listen to the world? And they had to play this out in nature films when they were trying to represent, you know, like when you zoom into a bird, how should it sound in your yeah. ears? And, and yeah, like, yeah, like you said, there were a lot of people who argued for like a very literal kind of naturalist uh, way to do this. A close shot should be louder. Right. Uh, kind of the belief that there was a representation of real space in the editing of fictional spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but of course that yeah like you said that lost well you know what's interesting is i i was just watching um something uh i don't know if you know robert uh, scoble on he's a technologist kind of guy who okay. looks out and at, at new um startup companies and things like that and he he he, I was watching something that he was producing, uh, that he produced on YouTube the other day, and and he told his newest book is on context and the importance mm-hmm. of context, wearable mm-hmm. computing, and all this stuff, mm-hmm. and that's the next thing is con- con- context. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he was saying, and it re- reminded me of this issue, is that there is a sensor now um, that some people are putting into speakers and headphone speakers where you can. It will know which, which way your head is facing, and it will yeah. keep the sound. Um, organized so that it comes from the one direction. So, that, for example, when you're when you're listening to a concert, right, you it's coming from one direction. So, if you turn your head, it's still coming from that direction. You hear it differently, oh, right? right? So right. N- now with these speaker with these headphones, because it knows where your head is, mm-hmm. it will be able to keep the sound in one spot, even as you turn your head. And hear it from 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 different perspective. So yeah. it's, I mean, it just struck me as like that, that's kind of. It didn't even occur to me that it, well, yeah, when I'm <laughs> listening on my iPhone or whatever, right. the sound is everywhere. The sound's everywhere, and I turn yeah. my head, it's still right. there. Right. And so, yeah. and it's it's and there's a sense in which that's completely unnatural. I mean, right. And of course, then of course, what becomes well, then that's a question. It, you exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Exactly. What's natural? Exactly. And what's not. But uh, but I thought that that was I mean, so. This issue is is still at play. Yeah, and, and that's cool. I hadn't heard of that before. Yeah, I'll, you, you I'll find the link to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and because you also hear about like you know three D sound and like hi, you know hyper surround sound yeah. and and THX and Dolby and things that they're doing now yeah. where you can hear a you know whatever it is artillery fire move from behind you to in front yeah. of you. So yeah, it's interesting because there does seem maybe to be like a renewed commitment. Uh, right. In the entertainment industry, maybe on the relationship between sound and space. Well, and when I'm when I'm in a, a movie theater or in one of these surround sound kinds of uh, environments, I I it is disconcerting because I'm not used to watching things that way, mm-hmm. and I'm really literally <laughs> I get scared to turn around because that's part of the experience, right? But right. you know, but but it does I think also um, relate to this whole question of what what our different senses offer us. So mm-hmm. vision has certain things that it gives us. And, and sound, I mean, sound is temporal. It's directional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, sight is directional too, I guess. But there's there's something different about sound. And that's one of the things I thought you brought out nicely in the essay, which was, you know, that we tend to, we tend to um, understand experiences and even theorize experiences like the museum mm-hmm. experience exhibitions in visual terms mm-hmm. then we talk about the the way in which this thing has the, the we've experienced these you know the visual layout of something and we sort of seem to go to sound you know in a secondary tertiary even mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and even think mm-hmm. about how sound is operating on us right well i think that the museum and this paper in particular, and I'd like to do more about this, you know, in, in longer book-length projects. But the museum, to me, serves as a really great site for thinking about the relationship between the senses, like you mentioned. I mean, I think we saw in early sound studies work um, a kind of tendency to romanticize sound itself, right? Like, you know, sound might allow you like a sort of deeper imaginative play or it, it stimulates you in a different way than, than vision stimulates you. And I think that that 
you know, people have critiqued that approach, right? And and then likewise, the visual has been dominant for so long. We keep talking about like, all right, like, do we need to downplay the visual? And, and I think the answer is yes or no. Sound does offer very u- unique things, but I would never advocate, um, you know, for a sighted person to walk through a natural history museum with their eyes closed. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that right. might be an interesting experience, right. but it's an incomplete experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what I'm trying to say. I mean, museum studies is maybe in some ways unsurprisingly, like, just dominated by, by vision and sight. Mm-hmm. But what I was really surprised to find is that you can walk into a natural history museum right now and see taxidermic dioramas that were made in 1901. Mm-hmm. They're actually remarkably static. They were expensive. We don't kill animals anymore mm-hmm. um, for those purposes of display generally. Museums have them, and they want to have stuff to do with them. I mean, mm-hmm. and they're obviously they're very ideological, and they're, they're fraught with questions of dominance and imperialism and killing and display, sure. Right. But what's interesting is if you just think about how the museum itself evolved from, say, 1930 to 1960, what you find is that they just wanted to put sound everywhere. And it's a total, I think, a totally neglected thing that happened in museum history at that time because putting the, you know, these recordings with taxidermic displays was one thing, but there's whole other things. Um, there were phonographic concerts, like I mentioned. They started in art museums, but those moved into natural history museums. You start to get into the PA system and overhead speakers. Mm-hmm. The American Museum wired the whole thing for sound in 1939 and 1940. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a donor spend about 10000 bucks to do it. And then you start to get into planetariums and, and music shows that happen there. Right. You get into the birth of the audio guide. Right. The first one in the U.S. is 1954, also at the American Museum of Natural History. Uh-huh. They called it the Guidephone, and it was powered by low-powered, um, low-powered radio stations. There was like a little radio station really? in the museum that, that sent the signal out to a little thing that you carried like a purse. And so it was always saying – so everybody heard the same thing at the same time. It wasn't tailored like you see now press this number and learn about this Well, thing. yes and no. This is also <laughs> where it's cool is that it broadcasted on different bands Okay, um, that could be like automatically picked up. And, and they were, like, like I said, super local. So when you walked into the Hall of Birds, you heard the Hall of Birds I narrative. See. Okay. When you walked into the, you know, Hall right. of Mammals, African Mammals or whatever, right. you, you heard different stuff. So, so yeah, I think and, – and my whole project in general too is, is about kind of striking the right balance. I mean I'm a sound guy. Yeah. I love talking about sound. So why? What, what, what ha- wait, why? What, what got you into sound? Why is that? I got into sound actually through when I was just in grad school. Yeah. I came in thinking I wanted to do – I don't know, some more traditional like environmental history uh-huh. kind of work. I took a really great film class with this uh, Rick Altman, yeah. who became really kind of a mentor to me. Uh, he wrote a big book on silent film sound. I took a class with him, wrote a paper on like, you know, birds and, you know, what's going on with sound effects. And, uh-huh. you know, I think it was actually a paper that touched on some of this stuff. What's going on in King Kong? What's going on in these early right. nature films? And he was the one who said, you know, there's something here. Yeah. He was the first guy who was like, I think you can make this. So, I mean, and so what, in what sense, in what sense then does this connection between sound lead you to recordings, right? I mean, because voice mm-hmm. and sound mm-hmm. is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um but the technologies associated with sound is, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously you can't study these early issues of sound, these early sound phenomena without listening to recordings. Right. And without thinking about how 
the technology of recording is impacting the mm-hmm. uh, the the experience, especially since, as we've already talked a little bit about, mm-hmm. it's often associated with this desire to preserve mm-hmm. for posterity mm-hmm. uh, the memory of something that ex- that might go extinct, or in the case of you know early recordings, I've heard of of um, uh, folk music and things like that. It was to capture this these original kinds of music right. that, that, you know, from which, you know, you can have, tell a whole history of rock and roll and other kinds of things, yep. right? Yep. Uh, and even now when you listen to NPR and think about something like StoryCorps and other, it's yeah. all about yeah. sound and memory and preservation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it seems bound up with, with, with one another in a different way than... Than vision does, than sight does, and maybe it's the temporality dimension of sound. I it don't know. it might be. It also might be, you know, sound is often talked about as being especially intimate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's this kind of it's this vibration in your ear. There's a there's a sensuousness right. to it. Well, everything you just said is really compl- it's, it's complicated. <laughs> I mean, there's like a lot. There's a lot packed in there. Yeah. I want to I want to try to touch on okay, actually yeah. a lot. Of, yeah. Like a lot of things you said. I mean. The preservation component of sound was there from the very beginning in a certain way. It also had to be learned. Um, Jonathan Stern talks a lot about this in his book, The Audible Past. He talks about the ethos of preservation uh, that, that became a part of the material. I mean, the funny thing is even though we think about sound as this thing that can potentially last forever, it can capture the speakers of the dead, you know, the voices of the dead, all this stuff. Early sound recording is actually exceedingly fragile. Yeah. You know, these early things that we want to listen to, yeah. if you play them once, you're lucky right. if you can get anything. So, so it actually had to be sort of built in to the, to the medium itself. So it wasn't quite inherent, but it became, right. it became a part of a project. Um, you know, can we make these things longer lasting? Can we save them forever? Stern ties this into like whole other preservationist things that are going on at the turn of the century, like ranging from like you know embalming and Victorian death photography. There's this kind of mm-hmm. ideas of capture. Mm-hmm. They really ramp up though a lot when you start to get into some of these like institutional and professional anthropological projects. Um, specifically, the way that Native Americans would have been recorded. Early ethnographic field recording is just incredibly laden uh-huh. with this sense like oh my we have to save the voices of dying cultures mm-hmm. right and and also in this in this very kind of uh um hegemonic yeah. paternalistic Exa- kind of way. yeah like you total know? imperialist nostalgia <laughs> right. you know it's like as we eliminate you know native americans yeah. in particular it's like oh Let's gosh we have to save the, right. this beautiful important culture you know right. which you're totally eradicating right. So the preservationist stuff comes from, definitely is deeply, deeply comes out of that. Mm-hmm. Now, your other, your other kind of question, which is like, why, why recordings when you want to talk about nature sounds, right? Yeah. Like, there's yeah. other ways we can talk about how we experience sound in the world. But, I, I mean, I think my answer is one part, kind of an academic one. There actually is a lot of really good work on soundscapes. Uh, you might say, of the near and even really deep past. You know, United States, uh, kind of some books that are now classics in the field, how uh, listening to 19th century America, how early America sounded, using kind of textual analysis uh-huh. to reimagine the way that the world So, sounded. So descriptions of 
sounds and things in in literary texts and yeah literary texts personal journals Mm -hmm. um that book listening in 19th century america talks a lot about uh the differences between the north and the south Mm -hmm. how abolitionists versus uh non-abolitionists described the kind of sonic aspects of slavery Mm -hmm. the whips and the singing and Uh uh, you know stuff like that meanwhile on the other hand you've got a lot of great work that's about technologies and architecture and cinema um, and I think we kind of tend to think about those things as a little bit separate. There's our lived sonic experience, and then there's the mediated sonic experience. Right. Um, and what I was trying to do is bring those things together. Yeah. I mean, this stuff with bird recording in the 1930s shaped you know, the rest of the century with how we talked about nature and right. nature sounds and what we mean. And even to this day, you know, if you want to do... Um, acoustic ecology, or if you want to, if you want to study listener experience in the national parks, you can do surveys, and you do, but you also do a lot of recording. I mean, recording—it's just—it's become one of the ways that we access sound. It's become one of the ways that we can turn it into something that scientists can measure. Yeah. Um, and so, my wanting to look at the history of recording was to see how the technology and these cultural moments and you know, this ver- the variety of cultural things that were in play, how they shaped that. Yeah. There is no, there is nothing natural about how the Cornell guys recorded the first birds and put out those records. That was based on, you know, earlier imitate, imitative techniques and, and things that they had seen on the screen. Um, you know, the logic of how you make a bird record mm-hmm. was very much set up by previous representational practices. Right. So um, one of which was this Africa. Oh Africa man, talks, A- Africa talk, speaks. Speaks. Africa speaks. So. Africa right. speaks. Yeah. So, yeah. What is up with that? <laughs> Africa speaks is so weird, and it's it's incredible to watch it now because it's so immediately false. Uh-huh. So what is it? Just explain it for a second. Yeah. So Africa speaks was part of the uh, nature adventure genre. Um, it's documented by a guy named Paul Hofler, Hefler, uh-huh. um, who went down to Africa on like a classic expedi- expedition brought his camera and claimed that he was the first person to record, um, you know, the voices of the wildlife down there and also of the native people. So the video is staged, as many of them were, as a documentary. Um, He is the main character and also the filmmaker. He travels from, you know, the port cities and all around into the interior, recording, allegedly, uh, you know, the animals around him. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is what what year? This is 1930, 30 or 31, I right. think, yeah. So, um, so, And this is the other thing that, that complicates this issue just slightly, is that by now, every movie that's like a Hollywood movie is like a synchronized sound film. Okay. But these nature films couldn't be. The, uh-huh. the technology wasn't there to do it. So what we see with Africa Speaks is the first example of someone really trying to fake it. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so it's great. You know, it's like... You see this incredibly, what would be an incredibly noisy scene, hundreds of porters and hired hands and his crew loading equipment from a boat onto move, onto jeeps that are idling and mm-hmm. people are milling about and like what you hear is like, you know, one footstep <laughs> you know, or like one truck right, or, you right. know, or one box. But you say also that the, that the film, you know, problematizes or thematizes its own making at a number of a number of points. So, I mean, is it just a limitation of the technology that's causing it to be just poorly done? Or is there a sort of self-reflective, um, you know, just gesturing to these sounds 
recognize it, and no one in their right mind is actually going to think that this is a this is a real reflection of what's actually they're actually seeing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's possible. Yeah. I mean, what what else is possible is that because the subject matter is like so quote unquote exotic mm-hmm. that like if this guy tells you that a zebra barks, right. you know, what what what's your reference point to that besides <laughs> besides a zebra in a zoo? Right. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's definitely it's it's tongue in cheek. It's humorous. A lot of the humor is at Native Africans' expenses. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is, is kind of racist humor. Yeah. Some of the footage is absolutely astounding, though. Uh-huh. I mean, the the impala um, and and certain lion scenes. Is it black and white scene. film? Yeah, yeah. And certain lion scenes that they get are really good. What is most interesting to me about Africa Speaks isn't necessarily that they faked it. Um, because again, one of the things I'm trying to do is problematize the very idea between like a faked natural sound and a real one, right? right, right? right. But it's not necessarily that they faked it. It's it's that it indicates to me that there really was a desire here to hear this stuff. Like I, I don't think anyone would have believed it, but maybe you could have suspended your disbelief enough. Um, you know, to me, it like speaks to a moment where everyone is trying to do this. <laughs> Some people were trying to do it on the legit, like right. the people at Cornell. Right. Some of these like B Hollywood filmmakers or, or sub Hollywood right. filmmakers, but but they're but they're learning from one another in a way. I mean, maybe not Absolutely. from this direct yeah. film, but right. they're learning from one another in terms of what works, what doesn't work, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and how to effectively do this. Right. Right. And and this practice goes back too to the history of imitation which I talk about not in this uh, particular essay, but it's kind of the sec- section before this in my dissertation. Uh-huh. Um, there's also a, a tradition here of like bird imitation whistling is something yeah. I spoke, focus on specifically. And this comes up, and you know, when you combine this with the representational practices of things in, in these films, it's like you do expect to hear a single animal at a time. Uh-huh. Um, you do expect for it to not be cluttered with a lot of background noise. Um, you expect things to be, you know, of a relatively high fidelity, so e- easily distinguishable uh, foreground and background. You know what you're supposed to be listening to. Mm-hmm. This, for the record, is like totally different than the way nature sounds are recorded now. You know, these early ones, someone comes on and goes, you know, hi, Cornell University, here is the Blue Jay. And then it's just the sound of a blue jay right. edited so you don't even really hear the silences between the notes. I see. Um, like this very kind of close front and center, here is the blue jay, he's the star of our show. Uh-huh. And, it's, and it's also for pedagogical purposes too? To sort of, can you ident- learn to identify that sound? Yep. Or, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. There's totally like a pedagogical component to a uh-huh. lot of those records. Uh-huh. Um, but if you listen to something, and even when I was in Cornell, they let me hear some of the new stuff where I sat in a room where I was probably surrounded by 10 speakers. And, you know, you're on the coast of Maine, sonically, for all intents and purposes, uh-huh. right? It's like, it's the attempt to catch capture... The context like, and everything. Yeah, the context, like the totality of the soundscape. Mm-hmm. This is what scientists are into right now. Can we use sound um, as a measure of biodiversity? Mm-hmm. Is sonic diversity a measure of biodiversity? Many people think that it is. Um, that's totally different than the way it was done for many, many yeah. years. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because um, sound, so much of uh, our experience with sound is ambient and is not necessarily consciously mm-hmm. graspable. And it mm-hmm. seems to me that one of the things about vision, even though it has this um, 
ability to see a broad swath of things all at once, we very much focus on specific individual things easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. you are hyper aware that you're focusing visually on something. Yeah. Whereas, you know, sound, and I think to an even a greater degree, touch, touch fades completely into the background. I mean, to the point which I'm not really aware. And Aristotle, you know, talks about this too, aware of the clothes that I'm wearing and the kind of the way in which we're just always touching. Right. But we just don't right. think it. And we, we just, we're not cognizant of it at the all the time otherwise we'd be probably you know scratching ourselves all the time I mean, it's good that we get that we get habituated to the feel of things and i would say there's something similar happening with sound that we're habituated to the the sound of things in our until something you know poignantly mm-hmm. happens and mm-hmm. where our attention is drawn to it mm-hmm. um, but I wonder about that I mean from my perspective with regard to thinking about Aristotle thinking about so issues of habit and habituation mm-hmm. and the way in which we inhabit the world you know, sound has this sort of some of the elements of the visual because you have this dis, it's a distance Mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. and like touch which and, and taste which has this mm-hmm. you know which is really you have to be touching for um, but it but it's it's more it fades into the background mm-hmm. easily and therefore habituates us as individuals to itself so there's a right now I notice because I'm talking, talking about, about this. It, there's this thing that's outside of my office, which is all, always on, uh-huh. and I'm more and less aware of it. It's you know an air conditioner or whatever, right. or some machinery, right. and I it's sometimes, of course, when I'm doing a podcast, I'm hyper aware of okay, where is the sound coming from, <laughs> right. um, and but but it fades into the background. Same with mm-hmm. you know an air conditioner mm-hmm. that's on or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, you know, what? yeah, I mean, this is it, this is complicated. It's it's you're you're right. I mean, I think that we. Ambient sound is a thing that we definitely become used to on an individual level and on a broader level. Um, we can probably say with certainty the world is louder now um, than it has been in the past. I mean, the development of things that we now take for granted, the jet engine, um, right. you know, the, the superhighway, depending on where we live. Right. Um, I mean, I li- like, for example, just in town, I live on Atherton. It's a, that's a four-lane street. I'm used to that now. Right. You know? Well, and I and was, and I was. The, we went um, hiking in the Shingletown Gap this weekend, mm-hmm. and um, we got up into the up there in the hill a little bit. And I just you know, I talked to the, it was with my daughters and my wife. I said, like, just, just nobody move, you know. Yeah. And it was just quiet. Yeah. And. It was great. Then, of course, we hear this plane go over. Right. Like, wow. Okay. Right. Yeah. There right. it is. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. It's like you can't you can't escape it. Right. And there's you know there's a lot of people interested in that on a lot of different levels. I mean, people who are advocates for sound um, that that exact quiet that you're talking about. You know, there's been a movement happening from at least the 1960s earlier. I mean, urban noise abatement is slightly different, so right. maybe I don't want to go there. But when you think about the idea of natural sound, you know, a lot of people talk about it as that's being that's part of the resource, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's part of the thing that we love when we're out there. Right. And so there's people who are very interested in you know changing flight patterns over national parks, yeah. for example. So you don't have that plane right. when when you're in there. But also on a technological level, there's all this sound canceling technology. Sure. Where they're playing the what are they doing? Playing the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It really is kind of surreal. Right. That's you how know? your white noise headphones work, or whatever. Yeah. They, they can hear what's out there and play the opposite. And play the opposite. And phase it out. Exactly. Yeah. 
and and you know people talk and people talk a lot about this way about urban noise too. Um, there's actually several nonfiction writers in the last couple of years who've talked had this kind of like almost like network moment. Uh-huh. They, they're not going to take it anymore, <laughs> where it's like you can listen to the sounds of the city for for so long, and then finally you realize like, oh gosh, this is driving me nuts. Right. Um, yeah, and that and that is one of the weird things about sound. Well, especially when you become aware of it, right? Right. As insofar as you allow it yourself to be habituated to it, mm-hmm. it can be. Mm-hmm. In the distance, it can be in the background. Right, you can live with it. Right, your awareness of it, right, heightens your right. sense of it for sure. Well, and I think that's one of the things. Just bringing it back to the whole museum experience mm-hmm. that that is interesting about wanting to bring sound in. Now, I understand the desire to have you know the audio tour and all of that kind of thing. That 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 seems like a, a, of a different order than trying to uh, give you an experience of the sound of an animal or of you know walking into a room and have jungle sounds and other things around mm-hmm. so that you feel as if you're not in that museum anymore you're somehow there right 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 yeah and that's obviously an important distinction i mean the the notion of the museum guide is based on you know a much older tradition of just you know a lecture or the or the docent right. or whomever right the desire to play these sounds in atmospheric ways um was very much about about immersion, mm-hmm. and that's actually one of the things I'm trying to point to with with this relationship to cinema. Um, I think that natural history museums were, in many ways, trying to make their um, experiences more cinematic in the sense of immersive um, and allowing you to lose yourself. Um, but what they found is that m- motion pictures, in and of themselves, weren't the most effective means of doing that. Uh, for whatever reason, the technology wasn't that new. It wasn't what you expected to see in the museum. So in this case, we can point to the uniqueness of sound mm-hmm. as being something that was specifically called on to create, yeah, this this immersive, this immersive kind of experience. And that also, you know, we can we can trace back to very very early uh, sound reproduction and, and musical things. Um, there was this whole genre of music at the turn of the century called descriptive discs, um, which prefigure in a lot of ways some of these advanced um, environmental practices that I'm talking about now. But the idea of the descriptive disc was like, you know, it was called Down on the Swanee River, or it was called Morning on the Farm. Mm-hmm. And you would use a band and maybe an imitator and maybe some, you know, sound effects with your hands or you're smashing the watermelons together or whatever you're doing to create these kind of to create these kind of sonic environments to create the sense of space mm-hmm. um, that was that's also part of this that's another thing I point to as being uh, influential to this long string of environmental practices that were kind of there there from the outset I think that you had um, yeah this kind of sense that that sound could transport you yeah, it could it could physically right. move you, right. and, and that was that's also an interesting thing about the history of of the phonograph and and the kind of history of recorded sound in general. Is you have two kind of competing notions of what sound was supposed to do from the outset. You know, one is like this being able to capture a real thing in the world and present it to you truthfully, right. um, a boxing match or an opera. Right, a, a performance by a large orchestra. There's an idea there that that's there's a fidelity to that. Right. Um, the other idea is like, hey, look how we can do these creative kind of projects. Right. 
like you're in the forest, you hear you know the chimes, right. which symbolize the birds, and there's a piccolo, timpani, thunderstorm. Um, you know, a lot, the long tradition of program music. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you have these things where, on one hand, it can be the truth. On the other hand, it can be a kind it of thing. Ima- it is imagined. And, and imagined. And, yeah. and, and, you know, and the, the, the side that leans toward truthfulness is, is that the preservation, that capture. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, maybe, you would say always, that's in relationship to its other yeah, uh, the fanciful, right? The the being well, able to transport I, you. I mean, you know, I imagine that that's always been um, that's always been wrapped up with with not only sound but with other mm-hmm. with other senses too. I mean, I, I think even now when you think about uh, particularly now digital photography and mm-hmm. all the filters and things, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. can capture something. You know that is a very that that is true in a in a kind of very literal sense, <laughs> right. right? This is right. the picture unfiltered, you know, right. of this moment, mm-hmm. and then we throw some filters on it. It has all these effects, and it looks, you know, enhanced in some way, right? Um, but uh, but and of course that's that, that then it moves into some kind of artistic dimension. So as you're saying, when you're right. when right. you're talking about you know the timpanis and and representing basically artistically mm-hmm. the mood of the farm in the morning mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a different kind of um, endeavor in a way, oh, but it's not un, it's not unconnected to this sort of high fidelity, right? Know. And and you know that's that's also part of like one of the long plays of my project that I'm trying to do here is mm-hmm. I think this work was oftentimes incredibly creative, yeah, and very fascinating, especially when you get into um, in the kind of longer version of the museum chapter that we're talking about today that's in my dissertation, I start to talk about Folkways records uh-huh. and the way that Moses Ash and some of the people there basically were doing what we would now call tape collage. Um, you know, you would assemble recordings in these like hilariously fake and disparate locations, you know, the Bronx Zoo or some recording you get from Cornell that's from, you know, the, the desert southwest, like whatever. Right. Take all this stuff, splice it together, and, you know, put it out an album. It's called The Sounds of Nature. <laughs> and it's like, well, <laughs> you know, that's, that's pushing it. But, right. but we have a long kind of, and kind of academic tradition and, like, deep reverence for people like John Cage um, and, you know, other mid-century avant-garde composers who are getting into tape manipulation, who are getting the idea that all that all sound is music. Right. Because that's the other thing is here, too, is is this stuff music? Right. Which is like a, a kind of broader and more complicated question. Right. But what you start to see is you start to see these really interesting tape manipulation practices that I'm interested in. I'm interested in both pointing those out as a kind of way to sort of downplay or decenter the role of the avant-garde in the way we think about how natural sound can be manipulated. And also at the same time to say, you know, what these guys were doing was cool. Yeah. Um, like in that aesthetic sense, yeah. it was cool. Absolutely. It was interesting. And to see the way that most, um, you know, records at that time, and we're talking like that were sold in museums, that were used in schools. You know, this stuff wasn't like esoteric um, stuff for the collectors or something. I mean, right. it was like relatively widespread. And it was a relatively creative process yeah. by which sound was assembled yeah, and, and meant to represent the natural world. Um, and, and again, too, what, what, we're, what we haven't talked on yet, but what we've been sort of dancing around, is the idea of psychoacoustics. You know, there's sound in the world in some abstract sense, and then there's the sound, you know, that 
that our brain, right. you know, thinks about. And so oftentimes, and, and that's another thing, like, I'm not interested in saying that those records aren't nature, you yeah. know? I think they are nature, right? right? The story is, why, why do we believe that they're nature? Yeah. What other things have we encountered? Like, right. you know, and, the media, and the whole process of mediation, how they were how they were recorded, where they were, why they were, all goes into the nature of that sound. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I think the same, obviously, is, is true of, of, you know, recordings of all kinds and probably, you know, less mediated sound, namely the sound that's only mediated by your ears, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and your own experience and your life's experience so that you're hearing things differently because... Of your age and your experience. Exa- yes, right? yes. So it's always mediated. Right, right, exactly. And that is, like, a super important point that is worth, like, reemphasizing. Like, the body itself is historical. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I think some of these technologies of uh, context uh, that, you know, w- the, the way in which even, as you're saying, the, the more recent sounds that Cornell is, is gathering are more contextually aware. Mm-hmm. And I think technology in general now is moving in a direction of attending to context mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. Um, attentively, yeah. you know, more uh, intentionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the great things about working at a university like Penn State is I get to meet people like you who are doing <laughs> interesting work uh, as a postdoc in the IAH, and I'm really glad for the IAH to... Uh, to bring you here for the year. So this is a year thing? Yeah, this is a year thing, and I'm also supremely grateful. Everyone over there, uh, Michael Barabay especially, um, have been super supportive. I have, yeah, a one-year thing. I'll be teaching a class in the spring. Great. Um, Great. So English 297C, <laughs> if any right. undergraduates here this we'll podcast. We'll definitely publicize that. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it's, it's great to have you here. It's really great to have you be participating in our digital humanities initiatives here uh, at Penn State. And um, thanks for coming to the Digital Dialogue. Thanks so much. I'm really excited by the digital work that's going on here and just the work in general. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. This has been the Digital Dialogue. The Digital Dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of the Digital Dialogue on www.cplong.org where you're invited to listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been the Digital Dialogue.